So if you're just joining us for this series, you missed part of it, we've been uh, talking about a question. It's a question that really everything has revolved around for the last few weeks. It's this question of what would it look like to have an adult starting point of faith? An adult starting point of faith. Now, the reason we've talked about this, the reason I think it's such a big question, is because all of us as kids begin to develop some idea of God or faith, what we believe. If you grew up in a, some type of faith tradition, you had a parent or a pastor or a priest or somebody to kind of tell you, you should believe that and you should believe that and you should believe that, and that formed your framework of faith. If you didn't grow up in church or around faith, you still formed an idea of what faith was about based on little snippets of what you were told or what you heard. And that may have been okay as a child, but as you grow older, one of the things you discover is... Uh, that framework of faith is not complete, and it, in some cases, it's not even accurate. And yet, we grow up, and as an adult, we start to experience all these things and learn all these things, and we try to compare them to what we were taught as kids about faith, and there are gaps and there are discrepancies, and everything doesn't add up, and we start to have doubts, and sometimes we go back and we ask people about it, and they're like, no, you just need to have more faith, you just need to keep believing. In other words, they keep giving you the, the kid answer, the, you know, the thing that you would tell a, a five-year-old or an eight-year-old, and so there, there never seems to be anything beyond it, and so some of you, because of all those doubts and discrepancies, because of, oh, this doesn't make sense anymore, or this doesn't add up, or this isn't even appealing anymore, because of that, some of you literally have walked away from faith. Some of you kept coming to church, but you just kind of go through the motions. Faith is not an integral part of your life. It's not a central part of your life because it just doesn't seem that relevant to you. So we've been saying this. What if, as an adult, you could clear away everything that you know about faith and about God and about church or religion? Well, if you could wipe the slate clean, start all over. Who would you ask about it? What would you learn? What would you read? How would your views about faith maybe be different than they are today? That's a great question to ask, I think, because... A lot of times we carry misunderstandings and misperceptions and confusion with us all throughout our lives, and it impacts the way we view God, or for some of us who are followers of Jesus, it even impacts the way we relate to God. So if you missed any of that, if you missed any of that, and you want to catch up on the rest of this, on all the episodes, you can download our app, and that's the easiest place to watch them, or you can go to our website and watch them there as well. Today, I want to pick up the conversation where we left off last week, and I want us to talk about another one of these issues that I have found there's a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding, and a lot of misperceptions about it. So let me start by asking you this question. This will lead us in to our conversation today. Here's your question. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? The answer to that is yes, you have. So have I, right? All of us have done this at some point. When we were teenagers, we tried to bargain with God because we were going to be late getting home for curfew and it was like the third time, and we knew what the consequences were going to be. So we prayed, prayed, prayed. You did this, didn't you? Maybe it was just me. We prayed, 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 like, oh, God, please let mom be asleep on the couch. Just let her fall asleep, you know? And then you figure out what you can negotiate with God in order to make that happen. So it's like, okay, what does he want? What does he want? Okay, God, I'll go to church um, an extra time. I'll, I'll go to youth group Wednesday night. I'll, go, I'll sign up for summer camp, and I will throw a stick in the fire at the end of the week if you will just make mom go to sleep, you know, and not know that I'm late and I can sneak in. Then we get to become adults. We do the exact same thing. It just looks different. You know, we're going to be late on that project, and we're praying, God, please just don't let the boss ask. Just please. And we figure out, you know, what we can offer or what we can negotiate to try to make that happen. Or it's, please don't let her know what I did last weekend. Don't let anybody tell her. Don't let her find out, God, if you'll just, then I will. Or don't let him know about the money. Oh, my gosh, just don't let him know about the money. You know, I hope, God, I hope, just please make the test negative. Just please make it negative, you know, just negative, negative, negative. Like, we're, we're willing to offer what whatever we think it's going to take to make that happen. All of us have found ourselves in situations where we negotiate and bargain. Even those of you, I know some of you are here, and we love having you here, even those of you who would consider yourselves atheists or agnostics, 
Most of you, based on all the conversations I've had with my friends who have your belief system, most of you have found yourself in a point in life where it was so bad or you wanted something so badly that you actually tried to bargain with a God you didn't know existed. And your prayer was more like, okay, to whom it may concern. I don't even know who you are up there, you know, he, she, it, to whom it may concern. If you'll just heal this person, if you'll just get us back together, if you'll just not let them die, if you'll just, if you'll just, and you figured, you know, I'll believe in you, it'll be proof, you know, I'll start going to church. Like, you figured out what you thought would matter to God. All of us have a tendency to bargain with God. And then sometimes, sometimes, what we're praying and what we desperately want actually happens. It's always cool. It actually happens, you know. And here's what's interesting. Isn't this true for you? Here's what's interesting. We don't keep our end of the bargain when it does happen. It's like, mom was asleep. I can't believe it. Next day, we're talking to our friends. They're going, did you get, no, I didn't get in trouble. I was so, it's what we, I was so lucky. I was so lucky. I got home and mom had fallen asleep. She had no idea what time I came in. Or I was so lucky. I got to work and my boss had had to go out of town on a trip. So I got three extra days for that project. I was so lucky because I found some money or got some money I didn't know was coming. I replaced that money. So he never knew, you know, and she never found out about Oh my gosh, I was so lucky the birth control worked. Holy cow, I was so, you know, nervous laughter, nervous laughter. So anyway, you know, we all got this deal. It's like, oh my gosh, please God, please God, please God. And then when it happens, when it happens, we're like, oh, I was just lucky. It was just lucky. We, we hardly ever keep our end of the bargain. Now, that's just human nature, okay? We all do this. But here's what I want you to think about for a minute. When we bargain or negotiate with God, we're making two big assumptions, Two very big assumptions. The first one is this. We assume God knows I exist. When I bargain with God, I'm assuming there is a God in heaven, okay? The one who created the universe actually knows who I am. He knows my name, and he's paying attention to what's going on in my world, and he gives a flip. That's what I'm assuming. I am assuming, oh my gosh, I can bargain with God because you're paying attention to me, and you know what's going on, so I get to talk to you about this. The other assumption we make I mean, that's pretty big faith, actually, if you think about it. Some of you don't think you're a person of faith, but you bargained with God, so <laughs> you've demonstrated faith. The other, the other thing that's even bigger than this, though, is this one. It's the assumption that I have something God wants. Now, think about this for a minute. This is pretty bold. Like, the God of the universe needs something from me. So we're like, okay, I'm going to sit down at the negotiating table, and I'm going to figure out how to bargain because I need something from God, but I think God needs something from me even more. I've got something that he desperately wants. And all of us land a little differently in terms of what we think is so valuable that we have that God wants. But for some of us, we decide, you know what he wants? He wants our obedience. That's what he wants. So, okay, whatever that thing is that I think God's wanted me to do that I have not done, I'm going to tell him, if he'll do this, then I'll do that. If you'll do this, then I'm going to be generous and give some money to help that person. If you'll do this, I'll take some time and go volunteer over there. If you'll do this, I'll tell you what, I'll read my Bible and I'll pray a little bit more, God. If you'll do, if you'll do, we figure out some act of obedience or something we think God wants us to do that matters so much to him. For others of us, it's not the obedience route. We take the route of attendance. Oh, it's all about going to church. Okay, God, so... Listen, I know I haven't been a lot lately, but if you will do, then I promise I'm going to go on Sunday. Okay, not enough. So I'll go two, two Sundays. Three, no, I'm not doing three in a row, but I'll do two. Okay, I'll do two. It's like I'll figure out how to make that work because I think that matters to you somehow, and if, if I'll just offer that, well, you'll give me what I want. Some of you go this route. This is common. <laughs> well, God wants my money. I know he wants my money because every preacher wants my money, so God must want my money, right? So we, we think, okay, here's the deal, God. Here's the deal. If you'll do it, if you'll do it, then I got this 
crisp $10 bill that I'm going to drop in the bucket on Sunday. I'm telling you. It's like, okay, that didn't get me anywhere. 20. I'll do 20. I'm not going above 20, but I'll do 20, God. You know, it's like, how much do you need? And let's figure out, you know, how much I really want this and we'll negotiate. We all assume, this is interesting, isn't it? It's pretty bold. We all assume we have something so valuable to God that he's like, oh, okay, you can kind of manipulate me. I'll do whatever you want me to do in order to get that from you. Some of us grew up in faith traditions, or we grew up in churches, or we grew up around some religious people who even taught us this. Okay, here's how it works. If you do X, Y, and Z, then God will do this. It's kind of like a a formula. You just got to figure it out, and you just got to trade off with him, because God will do these trades if you do it right. But this is not taught anywhere in the writings of the New Testament. Nowhere in the New Testament do these authors say, these people who lived with Jesus, okay, they walked, they spent three years with him. Nowhere in the middle of this do they say, oh yeah, this is how it works. God wants something from you that's really valuable to him and you can trade and bargain with him. Actually, the exact opposite is what they teach us. Here's what you find when you read the New Testament writings, that God doesn't want anything from you. He wants something for you, which is why he won't sit down at the bargaining table and negotiate with you and it's frustrating isn't it because you're going God if you will then I'll believe if you will then I'll do if you will and then he doesn't do it and you're like well maybe he doesn't exist well maybe he just doesn't care no he's just not going to sit down at a negotiating table and bargain with you about something because he doesn't want anything from you and so all of these offers that we all tend to make God from time to time they're just silly to him it's like no I don't need that that's not what I'm looking for I don't want anything from you The writers of the New Testament teach us that instead God wants something for us. And it's why, in spite of all of our silly negotiations, he still pursues a relationship with us. He still loves us. And he still shows up in our lives. But it's not to get anything from us. Now, this may be a new concept to you. It may not be how God was presented to you as a kid or as you know when you were growing up. But there is a word that describes this idea. And you've heard this word, but this word, there's a lot of confusion around it. People tend to define it in a lot of different ways and think it, um, think it applies to them in a lot of different ways. Okay, so let me give you the word, and then I'm going to give you a definition. The word for this idea, God didn't want anything from you, just something for you. It's the word grace. You've heard of this, right? Grace. Grace is at the epicenter of the Christian faith. Grace is at the heart of Jesus' message. You open up the stories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read any of them. All four of those authors tell you repeatedly, at the very heart of everything Jesus taught, at the very heart of everything Jesus did, was this idea of grace. As a matter of fact, John, who wrote one of those accounts, John, who was a friend of Jesus, spent three years with him uh, before Jesus died and rose again. John, as he opened his account of Jesus' life, you know how he describes Jesus to us all? He says, Jesus, I was with him a lot, okay? I saw him in all kinds of environments. Basically, 24-7 for three years, I watched him. Here's the best way I know to describe him. John said he was full of grace and he was full of truth. That wasn't just something he did every now and then. Nope, this was at the core of who Jesus is. He is full of grace. So, based on what all of these authors wrote about this, let me give you my own definition of grace, okay? Here's what it is. Grace is the unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. That's what it is. Grace is unearned which means I can't work hard enough for it. Grace is undeserved, which means I can't be good enough for it. And grace is unmerited, which means I can't score high enough for it. Now, all of us tend to resist this idea. 
track with me for a minute. There is something in you and there is something in me that just naturally resists the idea of grace. It, we naturally resist the idea that, wait a minute, God's going to give me something that I didn't earn. Well, hold on, Matt. I think I have worked hard enough to deserve some of this. God's going to give me something, and it's not because I've been good enough. Well, I think I have been good enough. He's going to give me something, and it's not because I score high enough on some scale. No, 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 wait a minute. I think I score okay. I mean, there's something in us that thinks, yeah, I deserve, and I should get because of what I've done. And so we tend to, you know, begin to look at all the things that we do and how hard we've worked and how hard we tried and said, well, okay, I think God should send a little something my way because of what I've done here. I think God should send a little something my way because of how good I've been. I mean, when I look, okay, I think I, I don't score at the top. Okay, I'm not the top of the class. But when I look around at all the other people around me, well, I'm better than some of them. So surely because I'm making an effort, surely because I'm being good, surely because I'm better than they are, surely I deserve some of it. But that is not the message of grace. As a matter of fact, the minute you deserve anything, it's not grace anymore. It's not. Because grace is a gift that is completely undeserved, unearned, and unmerited. But there is something in all of us, isn't there, that says, whoa, but what about? And I've, I've worked pretty hard, and I think you're ignoring the fact that I'm a pretty good person. To which Paul, and if you know much about the Bible, the Apostle Paul had a lot to say about this. He wrote about this. He wrote a large part of the New Testament. And in pretty much everything he wrote, he talks about this idea of grace. Now, the reason why he did, and the reason why he pushed back on this idea that, oh, I've earned it, and I deserve it, and I merit it, is because that was Paul's mentality when he started. Paul grew up and became, when he was young, he became a Pharisee, which was part of the religious leaders, the religious ruling council, if you will, of the entire nation of Israel. And you think you're trying to be good. As a Pharisee, Paul's job was to do nothing but good. His entire profession, like, what do you do for a profession, Paul? He would have told you, I'm good. That's it. I'm good. Like, that's what they were paid for. They were paid to be as good as they could possibly be and to keep all the, the Jewish laws and all the temple laws of the temple model at that time. I mean, this is all Paul did. He just followed all the laws, and he did it perfectly. This was his job. So if you were saying you're good, Paul's saying, oh, you got no idea. Like, you're, you're nothing compared to what I did. And yet, when the, the Jesus movement began, when, these, when Jesus rose again, these followers of Jesus, about 500 people said, we saw him. They all saw him at different times and places. When they said we saw him, and people began to believe, and this, what we call the church now, when it began to start, Paul saw it as a threat because it was completely opposite. It, it was a threat to the Judaism that he practiced and that the Jewish people practiced. It was a threat to all the laws that they followed. And so Paul said, okay, I'm not going to let this thing put an end to our temple model. And so Paul, being the type A guy that he was, said, hey, I'd like to volunteer to go put an end to this. And they said, go ahead, do whatever you got to do. So he would go find followers of Jesus. He would arrest them, throw them in jail. He'd find others, he'd arrest them and have them persecuted. He'd torture them. He would find others, he would arrest them, and he would have them executed. Matter of fact, he brought a persecution on the early followers of Jesus that was so strong that most of them scattered throughout the known world at the time. They all had to leave Jerusalem. So Paul, and this is interesting, Paul was doing all of this under the assumption he was doing it for God. Well, yeah, this is what God would want me to do. God didn't want the temple model messed up with. So Paul was doing everything he was doing, assuming he was doing it for God, and assuming he was better than all the people he was doing it to. And then Paul had an encounter with Jesus that literally rocked his world because he began to understand grace. 
It changed his life so much that in a moment he went from persecuting the church to being its biggest proponent and supporter. Spent the rest of his life traveling around the known world telling people about the grace that God offers and getting churches started in all these different communities. And so Paul one time, was, he's, it was about A.D. 65, okay, A.D. 65. He's sitting in a Roman prison cell. Why is he there? Because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. He wouldn't stop talking about this message of grace, and the Romans were like, that's enough. We're shutting you down. So they throw him in prison. So then he starts writing letters back to all of these churches he started all along the way. And he writes one in AD 65 to a church in Ephesus, to a group of Christians that he had met. He'd explained grace to them. They had embraced it. They had started a church there. Now he's writing back because guess what? Just like with us, they had some misperceptions, some misunderstandings, some confusion around the importance of this idea of grace. So he says, let me write you and explain this to you to clear up all the confusion. And what he says is so, so powerful. It starts really harsh, I'm just going to tell you. It starts a little offensive. It starts, Paul starts with some really bad news, but then he brings some hope to it as we go along. So here's how he starts. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I told you it was harsh, right? Because if, if you're talking to me and you're going, okay, I, listen, here's the thing. I don't think I'm dead. Like I don't, uh, I don't think what I've done is that bad, that it's killed a relationship with God or it's killed a relationship with other people. I mean, I'll tell you what I need, Matt. I need some behavior modification. This is how we think. I just need to change a few things. I do have some habits that need to be rehabbed. I do have some habits that need to be fixed. I, I got some self-improvement that I need to do. But I, I think I'm, I'm just struggling a little and I need a little help. I, I may be bad, but I can get better. And Paul says, nope, that's not true. You're not bad in need of getting better. You are dead. What you have done, we'll talk more about this in a minute, what you have done has killed your relationship with God. You are dead and you are in need of being alive. And it's all because of your transgressions and your sins. And he would point the finger at all of us and he would say, you have all participated in it and it's what you do naturally. Listen to what he writes next. You're dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. That is a really confusing way to say this. I'll clarify it. It's a really confusing way for Paul to say the things that you do, the sins that you commit, the times that you've hurt people, that came naturally to you. That's what Paul's saying. It was not an aberration. It was not a, oh my gosh, I don't know what got into me. Like, that's not like me at all. Paul says, no, that was exactly like you. It was exactly like you, because from the time you were about this little, nobody had to go around teaching you how to be selfish, how to be mean, how to be unkind. No, we've had to go around trying to teach you how to be selfless and kind and generous and thoughtful, because it's just your human nature and my human nature to do the things that we do that hurt ourselves, that hurt others, and that break our relationship with God. And Paul says, this isn't true for just some of you. This is true for all of you. It doesn't matter how good you think you are or how bad you realize you are. It's true for all of us. He goes on, verse 3. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time. In other words, all of us have done this. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And then he says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Well, that sounds offensive. I mean, good grief. Like, I don't know that I deserve wrath for what I've done. Paul says, oh, yeah, you do. So do I. Here's what he's saying. He says, you deserve to reap what you've sown. If you want to talk about what you deserve, you deserve to reap what you've sown. 
You have made choices all throughout your life that have hurt and devalued other people. And you deserve to experience the wrath from them that your choices created. You deserve for the consequences of those choices to catch up to you. If you want to talk about what you deserve, you deserve to reap what you sow. Hey, you have made choices, Paul would say, that have hurt yourself. You have made choices that weren't even in your own self-interest. You have made choices, now think about this. This is, if you don't believe that you know, we have a sin nature and that we naturally tend to gravitate towards these things, these kinds of choices, you, you explain this one. Because all of us have made choices that we knew was not in our own self-interest, in our own best interest, and we chose to do them anyway. You chose to do something you knew was going to hurt you, even though you knew in advance it was going to hurt you. And Paul says, because of that, you hurt yourself. You devalued your own self. And you deserve to reap what you've sown. You deserve for the consequences of those choices to catch up with you. And then he says, you have made choices that have disrespected God. The one who created you, the one who designed you with a plan and a purpose, you have intentionally made choices that have disrespected him and disregarded everything he has for you. You've walked away from his love. You've broken the relationship. And in the process, you've not only disrespected God, but you've devalued the people that he loves all around you. Paul says you deserve to experience the wrath from that. You deserve for the consequences to catch up to you. You deserve to reap what you've sown. Now, that sounds really harsh, but you've got to understand Paul is coming at it from the perspective of his own life, too. So he's not saying, oh, this is true for you because you're so bad. As a matter of fact, there was another letter he wrote where he said, hey, you guys all feel like you're sinners and you deserve for the consequences to catch up with you. He said, I just want you to know I'm the chief of sinners. I mean, you make a list, I'm at the very top. I'm the worst of the worst. Did you see what I was doing? I was going around killing the very people who were following Jesus. So he says, we're all in the same boat here. But Paul knew something, and this is what he's trying to communicate to all of us. Paul knew something that he had experienced personally. He knew what grace does once a person understands that this is true of them. He knew what grace does once a person acknowledges. I don't just need a little self-improvement. I am dead in my transgressions. I deserve to reap what I've sown. Paul says the minute that happens, grace has the ability to do something extraordinary. And here is the message of hope that he gives us. He goes on and he says, but, okay, it looks bad for us all, but, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Paul said, we all deserved it. We all deserved to get what we had coming. We all deserved to experience the wrath. We all deserved to reap what we'd sown. But God stepped in, and he took us from death to life. God stepped in, and he said, hey, here's a way to cross over from death to life. And it's all because of these two words, Paul would say. It's all because of but God, this is the whole hinge. This is the whole key. This is at the center of it all. But God, when I was dead. But God, when I was broken. But God, when I'd rebelled. But God, when I'd hurt. But God, when I had wrecked my world and my life. Paul says, but God stepped in. You didn't do anything? Paul would say, I didn't do anything. God did it all. He stepped in. He didn't step in because I had promised and negotiated and shown him something he really wanted. He didn't step in because, because I said I'd be at church, you know, an extra Sunday this month. He didn't step in because I'd given some money or taken some time to serve. He didn't step in because of anything good I had done. So, wait a minute, why would God possibly step into that? 
Paul says, here's why. It's because of his great love for us. You want to know why God does everything God does? Paul says, here's why. Not because of your goodness. It's not because of anything you have done. It's because of his great love. It is because of his love that he offers forgiveness to us all. It's because of his love that he created us with a plan and a purpose. And he says, I know you've messed up and you've rebelled against me and you've disrespected others. It's okay. you still got a purpose with me. It's because of his love that he offers a relationship. It's because of his love that he invites us into his family. Paul says, this is at the heart of everything. It is not because of anything you have done. It is because of his great love. Now, this is one of the points where some of us really struggle. This is a point where a lot of us push back. Because some of you, depending on your background and your life and your experiences, this is a moment where you say, wait a minute. Man, i got to tell you, I, I don't think God can love me quite like this. I mean, if you knew everything that I'd done, if you knew all the times I'd rebelled against God, like I didn't, I didn't make mistakes. I knew what I was doing was wrong, and I did it anyway. I knew it was wrong to cheat. I cheated anyway. I knew it was wrong to say that. I said it anyway. I knew it was wrong to break that relationship. I broke it anyway. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it, and I still did it. I can't even forgive myself. I'm telling you, there's no way God can still love me after I knew better, and I did it. Paul says, no, no, no. You're missing it because, again, you think it has something to do with you. You are underestimating the depth and the breadth of God's love for you. He says, you have forgotten that God is rich in mercy. You know what that literally means? Paul's saying God has mercy to spare. You can't outrun his love. And you can't overextend his mercy. He has mercy to spare. Go ahead, tell me your life story. Paul says, you do whatever you want to do. I'm telling you, I'm a living example. Whatever your story is, I can top it. And I know he has mercy to spare. See, if there was anybody, and think about this. If there was anybody, this movement of Jesus followers is just getting started. I mean, it's fragile. It's fragile. If there is anyone that God should have looked down at and said, good grief, I can't believe this Paul guy and what he's trying to do to people I love and the way he's treating them, and this is going to put an end to it all, I'm just going to crush him like a bug. If there's anybody that should have happened to it, it was Paul. And Paul says instead, in his great mercy and love, he looked down and he said, hey, you see that guy down there who's trying to destroy everything, kill all my family. Okay, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Let's just rock his world with grace, and then let's let him go tell everybody about it for the rest of his life. Paul says, I've been the recipient of this. You rank the sinners, I'm at the top, and yet God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, took me from death to life, offered me forgiveness. He invited me into his family. He goes on a few verses later, and he explains this in a way that if you grew up in church, this may be familiar to you. He explains it in such an incredible way. Here's what he says in verse 8. For it is by grace, or it is because of grace. So it's not anything we've done to earn it, deserve it, or merit it. Paul says, what I'm about to tell you, it's completely unearned, undeserved, and unmerited. It is by grace. Paul says that you have been saved. Now that's a church word, and it's got a lot of connotations to it. But let me tell you what Paul's referring to here. All Paul is saying to them, if you read the rest of his letter, you see this. Paul's saying, let me tell you what you've been saved from, and you didn't do anything to deserve it. It's by grace. But let me tell you what God did. He saved you from the penalty of your sin. You deserve to reap what you'd sown. You deserve to have to try to make up what you messed up. You deserve for all those consequences to catch up with you. And God said, nope, I'm going to send Jesus to die on a cross for their sins. He's going to pay the penalty they can't pay. He's going to pay the debt they can't pay. 
So I'm going to save them from the penalty of their own sin. I'm going to save them from the consequences. All those consequences that ought to catch up with them, I'm going to let them catch up with Jesus instead. Paul taught that he saves us from the power of sin. In other words, there are some habits in your life that Paul taught you can't break on your own. You've tried your best. And at best, all you can do is modify your behavior and try to keep them hidden. Paul said that's the power of sin over you. There's some things that just control you, but you don't have to be controlled by them anymore. Once you embrace grace, God saves you from the power of that sin. You can change. You can be a different person. You can be a new person with a new heart. And he saves us. Paul says eventually he's going to save us from the presence of sin. That one day he's going to invite us all to spend an eternity with him where there will be no sin or its consequences ever again. Not only that, Paul said God saved you for some stuff. He saved you for a purpose and a plan. doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You have a plan and a purpose in life. God saved you to live in peace. This is what Paul taught. That you could have peace with God. You could be at peace with other people. And maybe most importantly, to some of us, this is such a struggle. You could be at peace with yourself. And it's all because of his grace. And Paul says, it is by that grace and because of that grace that you are saved. Well, how in the world does God do that in me? Paul says it's simple. He does it through faith. He does it. Faith is simply this. A simple act of trust. A simple act of trust. There's nothing special or magical about it. It's a simple act of trusting. I can't do this for myself, but I believe Jesus has done it, so I'm going to trust him to do for me what I can't do on my own. Now, this is where we all want to resist, isn't it? Because there's something in us that goes, that is way too simple. That is way too simple. It can't just be trust. Okay, I believe Jesus died and rose again for my sins. Okay, I'll believe that, and I'm going to do this, or and I'm going to do this, or and I'm going to do this. I've got to do something. Like, what about the do something part? What about the behaviors, Paul? Paul says, no, you're missing it. The minute you introduce any of that into the relationship is the moment you lose grace. It's like he could hear us and know our objections. He goes on. He says, it's through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. Now, here's all he's saying here. When you receive grace, the hero is not the recipient of the grace. The hero is the giver of the grace. The recipient did nothing to receive it or to earn it. When you receive grace, the one who pays the price is not the recipient. The one who has to pay the price for extending grace is the giver. Think of it this way. Let's imagine that today... You're going 65 and a 45, and you get pulled over, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, here we go again. This is the last thing I needed. And the officer walks up, and she looks at you, and she asks you about it, and do you know how fast you were going, and you're honest. Yes, ma'am, I know, da-da-da, you know. You're doing all this. And then she says to you, I'll tell you what. Here's what I'm going to do. Today I'm just going to give you a warning, but I need you to slow down and not do this again. So you drive home, and, you know, you're telling your friends, your family, oh, my gosh, you're not going to believe it. I was going 65 and a 45. They pulled me over. Now, how would you end this story? Would you end this story by saying, I, I got pulled over, 65 and a 45. She didn't give me a ticket. She just gave me a warning. Am I awesome or what? Can you believe I pulled that off? That's incredible. That's not how you tell the story, is it? No. Because the hero of the story is the one who extended grace to you, not the one who got it. You didn't do anything to deserve that warning. The officer is the one who's a hero. That's who you would be talking about. Paul says that's how it is in our relationship with God. That the forgiveness God offers you, you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. You're not the hero of this story. 
And you can try to work all you want to work to, get, to earn it, but you're never going to get there. You can never be the hero of this story. He just freely offers it. It is, here's his word, a gift. A gift. Now, real quickly. You know what gifts we resist? We've all done this. What gifts, when someone offers them to you, do you resist? I'll tell you what they are. You resist a gift from someone who you feel like you don't deserve to get a gift from. You resist a gift from someone who you feel like, whoa, 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 our relationship isn't at the point. You're giving me something way too valuable for the nature of our relationship. You're offering me a gift way too valuable given what I know I have done for you. And there's an inequality there. There's an imbalance there. Those are the gifts you naturally resist. When people offer you that and that's the case, you, you don't think of it this way, but you intuitively start, intuitively start going, no, 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 I can't take that. No, no, I can't accept that. Because you just feel like, oh, that's going to create such an imbalance. I don't deserve that kind of gift from that person given the nature of the relationship that we have. I think this is why we often resist the gift of God's grace and his forgiveness. Because there's something in us that goes, it's an imbalance. And none of us want an imbalance. All of us want to feel like, well, I got that from them, but I've given enough to them. It pretty much balances out. So we fight it. It's why we try to do things for God. So there's not an imbalance in the relationship. And Paul's saying, are you kidding me? The gap is so big. The canyon is so great. The debt is so high. There's no way you'll ever balance this out. That's the whole point of Jesus coming. He did it for you. And yes, there's an imbalance. You need to accept the gift anyway. Don't resist it. Receive it. Don't resist it. Receive it. Stop trying to bargain and negotiate. And just accept the gift that he's offering you. So let me get practical for just a minute. Let me ask you this question. What standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? All of us have a standard. All of us have a standard. You hear somebody like me talking about this, and you immediately start thinking, okay, well, where do I stand and how have I? You've got some standard that helps you figure out where you think you stand with God and where you think the scales are. Now, there are really only two answers to this question. There are only two options. Okay? It's either your behavior or God's grace. The, the standard you're using is either your behavior or God's grace. You either believe that you're in right standing with God because God offered you his grace and a gift you didn't deserve and you embraced it. I'm in good standing with God because Jesus forgave me and I put my trust in him. And what he did for me. That's your standard. Or your standard is something to do with your behavior. Those of us who follow Jesus or, you know, you, you always consider yourself a Christian or a church person. Oftentimes the way this sounds for us is, well, I, I believe in Jesus and. And then you start, you know, I'm a good person. I think I'm a good father, a good husband. I try to treat people well. I try to love people. I go to church. I do, do. Anytime you've got a Jesus and, you're on the behavior side. You're not on the grace side. There can be no and, and it still be grace. So what's your standard? If for you it's behavior, here's what I want to know. Just think about this for a minute. How do you know what the standard is? In other words, how do you know how good is good enough for you to be in right standing with God? How do you know where the line is? I've had this conversation with a lot of people over the years. And sometimes what they'll tell me is they'll actually tell me something from the Bible. Like they'll say, well, the Ten Commandments, I think that's my standard. Like I, I keep the Ten Commandments and I always chuckle because, A, I mean, we talked about this in the series. God had a relationship with his people long before he gave them the rules, the Ten Commandments. So that wasn't the point of those. 
but we don't even keep all the Ten Commandments. So if that's your standard, you're shot, and so am I. Other people, they, I don't know why they pick this, but they'll say, well, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Like, I try to follow the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm like, I just chuckle. I actually say, you've never read that, have you? Because if you've read that thing, you know we all flunk. Like, that is, that's an impossible standard. Ten Commandments, you can maybe get close. Not, not on Sermon on the Mount, you can't. There, there is nothing, you can't look at the Bible. There's nothing in the writings of these authors that says, well, here's the standard for your behavior so you know how good is good enough. So you know what most of us do is just be honest. Think about yourself. This is probably what you've done if you lean towards this behavior side. You made up your own standard. I'm not being critical. I just want you to realize this. You made up your own standard. You came up with a set of do's and don'ts that you thought, I think this is good enough, and I think I can achieve these, and so you've tried. Or, and this happens a lot, you picked out somebody, and they became your standard. And you have said, you know what, here's my standard. I I just think if I can be as good as my mama, if I can live as good a life as my dad did, if I can be as good as my grandmother... I mean, if anybody was good with God, it had to have been my grandmother. The way she lived, she was just incredible. If I could just, there's my standard. If I can just be that good, well, I think I'm going to be okay with God. Now, there are two problems with you making up your own standard. One is, who are you to make up a standard? Like, you, you have no authority to do that. You're kind of playing God, okay? Well, we all get that. But here's the other problem. You can't even keep your own standard. Neither can I. We have all violated our own standards and our own consciences. Forget God's standard for a minute. We can't even keep our own. So if you're looking for a line, if you're trying to figure out how good is good enough, well, I think there's certain behaviors and God's going to be okay with me if I just do these things, you're never going to find that line because that line does not exist, which means you will go your entire life with no confidence or peace that everything is good between you and God. And the reason is because it isn't. It isn't because you're trying to earn and work your way into a relationship that can only be entered through grace. See, it's a difference between do and done. You have to ask, is my standard going to be what you do for God, or is it going to be what God has done for you? This is what it comes down to. This first question, what you do for God, you know what this is? This is called religion. This is what religion does. You pick any faith tradition or religious movement, this is what it is. A group of people come up with a list of do's, a list of rules, and if you follow all these things they teach you, you're good with God. It's how, quote-unquote, sacred men can take, quote-unquote, sacred text, and they can manipulate and control people because, good grief, they have the list. They can put whatever they want on that list and convince you it's from God, and you're trying to keep a list that's not even God's. It's just made up. But you can try to live this way. You'll just never have peace. You can try to live this way, you'll just never understand grace. You can try to live this way, you'll just miss a relationship with God and his forgiveness. Or you can say, nope, I'm going to live based on what God has done for me. This is why Jesus came. This is why when he was on the cross and he was about to die, he said these three words, it is finished. What in the world was he talking about? He was saying, I came because you can't do what you need to do to pay the debt you have with God. So I'm going to do it for you. When he said it is finished, he was saying it is done. Everything that needs to be done has been done. I've taken the consequences that we're going to catch up with them. I've taken the wrath that they deserved. I have taken and reaped the consequences of all they have sown. It's done. It's finished. And now just through a simple act of trust, because of God's grace, you can be forgiven. You're invited to be a part 
of his family. Nothing based on behavior. It's based on grace. Now, some of you are going, whoa, 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 but what about behavior? Like, you got, it matters how you live your life, Matt. You, got, you can't just tell people it's all grace because they'll go do whatever they want to do. Okay, listen. Behavior does matter. Like, how I live my life matters, but it has nothing to do with whether I have a relationship with God. Think of it this way. All you do becomes a response to what God has done. This is how your life matters. Everything you do becomes a response to what God has done. This is what it means to follow Jesus. When you understand grace and follow Jesus, you just do what you do for a very different motivation. It's not about trying to earn God, good standing with God. No, it's because of his extraordinary grace. In other words, if you ask me, Matt, why do you try to learn to be more and more generous? I'll tell you, I try to be generous because I have been the recipient of an extraordinary generosity. Matt, why do you try to serve people? I'll tell you why, because I have been the recipient of a God who chose to serve me when I didn't deserve it. Matt, why do you try to forgive? I'll tell you why I try to forgive, because I have been the recipient of some extravagant forgiveness that I did not deserve. This is what drives everything we do. It is not trying to earn something. It is simply a response to the overwhelming, extraordinary, amazing grace of God. But because of his great love for us, now I'm going to respond to that. So, as we wrap up, I want to give you some homework. Then I want to give you a challenge and we'll end. The homework is a question I want, to ask, I want you to ask. I hope you'll talk about it. If you're in a starting point group or a small group, you need to talk about this. If not, you need to sit down with some friends or some family and talk about it. Because every time I talk about this idea, there's resistance. People push back. It's just human nature. So here's what I want you to discuss. Here's your question. What's your but what about? Because you've been sitting there going, yeah, Matt, but what about? But what about? But what about? Okay. You need to sit down with some people and you need to say out loud what your what about is. All right? It's okay that you, if you disagree with me, it's perfectly fine. You can say that. You need to talk about your what about because until you get beyond your what about, you'll never be able to embrace grace. Now, next week, we're going to continue this conversation by talking about the faith piece. Paul said it's by grace through faith. And there's a lot of confusion around this faith piece too. There's a lot of confusion because most people feel like well, to follow Jesus requires blind faith. It's just blind faith. No, it's not. No, it's not. Next week is going to be the most disturbing message of this series. I'm going to warn you in advance, okay? You've got to bring your friends. It'll be a perfect Sunday to bring them. They will not be bored, I promise. It will be the most disturbing message. Now, if you're not a Christian, you will not find this disturbing. But for those of you who've been church people for a while, you're going to find it very disturbing. It's okay. You need to come and process through this because we're going to talk about this blind faith component, all right? Here's the challenge I want to leave you with today. It is time for the bargaining to end and the relationship to begin. It is time for you to stop trying to earn and deserve and merit something from God. You'll never have a relationship with him based on grace if you do that. You've got to quit bargaining. You just need to embrace the grace. You just need to accept the gift. For some of you, you've never done that. For some of you, you've tried to earn God's approval for a long time. You've never just taking the gift. I want us to close by giving you an opportunity to do that right where you are. So would you bow your heads with me? If you're ready for the first time to make this decision, to accept this incredible gift of amazing grace God offers, you just tell him, tell him this. Say, God, I'm, I'm sorry I've been trying to earn it. I've been trying to work for it. I've been trying to deserve what I get from you.
But I realize my debt is too big. The imbalance is way too great. That I don't just need to improve myself. I'm dead in my relationship with you. I need your grace to bring me from death to life. So I'm going to choose a simple act of trust right now. I'm going to stop trying to earn it. And I'm just going to trust that Jesus in his death and resurrection has already done everything that needs to be done for me to be forgiven and a part of your family. Thank you for your gift. If you made that decision, we'd love for you to stop at the suite as you leave. We've got a starting point book we want to give you just to help you to process this idea more and your next step. Father, thank you for your grace. It changes how we relate to you entirely when we realize that it's all because of your love. Thank you for being rich in mercy. Thank you that we can't outrun your love or outextend your mercy with our sin. Help us to live as you want us to live, not to earn something from you, but in response to this extraordinary love you've already shown us and we have now experienced through your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.